Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, recently, uh, many of you are probably aware that I was away for a couple of weeks uh, doing some studies for my doctoral program, and I'm so grateful for the prayers and the support that I received from so many of you, and it was a great time, a rich time, an exhausting time, but certainly is also part of a, a marathon as I'm in it for another couple of years. But I got to go up to school, which is just north of Boston, and while I was up there, I was able to go to a Red Sox baseball game at Fenway Park. Now, I got to just acknowledge that that was kind of hard for me because I grew up as a Yankees fan, even though I was in Colorado. Colorado didn't have a Major League Baseball team until 1993, and so I grew up rooting for a winner. And, uh, you know, and my parents also grew up as Yankee fans living just outside of New York. So... But it was Fenway, and it's historic, and I'd never been there, and so I figured, okay, I'll go and check it out. And you do, if you haven't been there, you walk in, and there is a moment of kind of awe at this historic stadium. You think about all the players and the games that have been played there for over 100 years, and so you just are taking it in, and then we find our way to our seats, which are pretty good seats along the third base line, and as I'm sitting down, I realize that these are the wooden seats that were installed in 1934, (laughs) and they are not made for a modern American man, certainly not me, and so I sat down, and My shoulders are touching the shoulders of the guys who I went with. My shins are digging into the wooden back of the chair right in front of me. And so I have to kind of wiggle myself with my legs to the side to try to sit there without my shins starting to bleed. And I finally look up to start watching the game. And I realize right there in my view is a column (laughs) between me and home plate. And so to see what's going on, I'm having to lean further into the shoulder of the guy to my left or my right and going, who is up? And it just kept reminding me of that Abbott and Costello sketch, you know, who's on first that came out in 1938. And I think they may have sat in my seat at Fenway. And that's what inspired the entire sketch. But it's funny, we, as sports fans, we, we go to these games and we start to form, it feels like a relationship with these players that we've never met. We watch them play, we get to know their, not just their names, but their stats and how they perform. And I got to say, baseball fans are unlike any other in terms of their love for stats. Because it's not enough just to know the normal stats, you know, hits and strikeouts. They want to know how many hits that this guy has had off of right-handed pitchers who are five foot ten to six foot one on an evening in June in the last third of the game? And if you're a baseball fan, you're like, yes, exactly. And other people are like, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and all of this, though, for baseball fans, helps them go, okay, in this moment of the game, what can I expect? Can I, do I have hope? Do I have confidence? Do I have despair? Do I have fear? Do I just need to pray? What is it? Because they've gotten to know these players, not just by name, but by their actions. 
by what they've done and their stats. Well, this morning we're starting a new series that we're calling Who's On First? Why not? Who's On First? Knowing God by name. And each week through the rest of the summer, we are going to look at another name or title of God that's given to us in the Bible, not just so that we can know that name of God and kind of check some box, but to know more of his nature, more of his character, know more of this God who, I mean, if we're honest, sometimes is mysterious to us. I mean, he is a bit of a mystery. When we think and we know who he is and what his nature is, what his character is, what can we expect as we walk through life? Can we expect hope or do we despair? Can we have confidence? Do we have joy? Do we have fear? And so each week, we're going to get to know God by another name and see him in action in Scripture. Now, on your way in, you may have received a who's on first trading card. If you, did you get one of those? Lift that up. Let me, let me make sure you got it. Yeah, okay, good. If you're not with us, you're at home, you know, we'd love to give you one because every week through this series, you're going to get a new trading card in the spirit of baseball. Why not? That's going to give you the name of God that we're looking at that week, a little additional information, some stats, some other places where you can find a reference to that name in Scripture to allow you to continue to go deeper and know God more fully. And so today... We're going to start trying to answer that question, who's on first? Who's this God that we approach? And we're going to begin with a fairly familiar story from Exodus chapter 3. And so if you want to follow along on the screen, feel free, or just listen for God's Word speaking to us this morning. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the mystery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. 
I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray as we move into God's word together. Heavenly Father, will you please add your blessing to the reading of your word? Will your spirit take the words of my mouth, the thoughts and meditations of our minds and hearts and shape them to allow us to know you more deeply? It's in Jesus' name that we trust and we pray. Amen. So this is a a pretty familiar story. It's one that even those who aren't followers of Jesus at least have some reference in their mind as they understand the reference to a burning bush. And in this story, we find Moses, who has been living in the wilderness in a place called Midian for 40 years. While he's out there, apparently, he's gotten married, and his primary activity is to tend the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro. Kind of a humble position, a step back for a guy who was raised in the palace of the pharaoh of Egypt. But a humble step that was necessary to prepare him not just to care for sheep, but to take care of the people of God. And one day, he's out with his sheep, we find in this story. He's wandered pretty far. He's on this mountain, and God interrupts not just his day, but his entire life. We're told that he sees a bush, that bush that is on fire, but it's not being consumed. And I think he has the same reaction we all would have. He's like, what is that about? I'm going to go check it out. And so he goes over, and as he approaches, it's from that bush that God begins his personal relationship with Moses and speaks to him, calling him by name to begin, Moses, Moses. Now, I don't know if you noticed, Moses' response is kind of just this matter of fact, here I am. And it's like, come on, Moses. There is a voice talking to you from a flaming bush. Could you show just a little bit more emotion? Like, could you just engage a little bit more? Because I don't think that would be my response. I think I would have run first, or I might have needed to clean myself up, and then I would have run. I'm not sure which. But here's Moses, here I am. And God then proceeds to tell him that he is going to send Moses back to Egypt to deliver his people. And Moses has all sorts of reasons. He gives at least five or six as the text goes on beyond today of why this is a terrible idea. You ever tell God it's a terrible idea, what his plan is for you? Yeah, see how that works out. But he gives him all these reasons. And the one reason that we're going to focus on today is Moses says, what if I show up and I tell the leaders of my people that the God of their fathers has sent me? And what if they ask me your name? What am I going to say? I I don't know. I can't can't remember. I've forgotten. It's been 40 years walking out here in the wilderness. I, I don't know who you are. And I think some of us have been there. Maybe you're there now after 15 months in a pandemic. It's been a long time. And I don't know. When was the last time I was close to God? When was the last time I felt like it was personal? When was the last time I felt like I could call God by name, not just by title? And God answers Moses' question very directly. I am who I am. Tell them. 
Tell them, I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. This is the personal name of God. If he was wearing a name tag, it would say, I am who I am. But the Hebrew, the original language that this was written in, is really difficult to understand. And this is a very hotly debated topic of what does this actually mean even today. And it's hard to grasp for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is that when you transliterate, which means take the Hebrew characters and turn them into English, it comes out as four consonants, Y-H-W-H. And even in Hebrew, there's some uncertainty as what, what do the, that configuration of consonants actually mean? Another issue is that this phrase, I am who I am, is first person imperfect form of the to be, to be verb repeated twice. I already lost some of you. <laughs> and it's split by the relative pronoun. Now, I'm just going to acknowledge I'm an engineer, so if you don't understand, you're in good company. I didn't learn grammar until seminary, way after I had graduated from college. And this gets a little bit technical this morning, but hang in with me for a minute. Because there's something profound in the technical realities of the language. Something profound that helps us know God more deeply. And so when we think about imperfect verbs in Hebrew, it's usually referring to actions that are not completed or that will be completed in the present or the future. There's something that's not done yet that's being revealed by an imperfect verb. And so let me give you a couple examples. I will eat. It's not done yet. We're looking ahead. Or the woman will come to the door. These are incomplete, unfinished actions that may happen in the present or the future. The relative pronoun introduces a, and connects a dependent clause or a relative clause to an independent clause. And what that means is that the, rel- the relative pronoun usually begs the question that's going to be answered, which one, how many. And so I'll give you an example again. Go back to the woman. The woman will come to the door. So the woman, which woman? The one who will come to the door. Right? So it's explaining, it's answering a question, which one is coming. And so when we start to look at this, to be verb that has some sort of incomplete action and is begging a question of who, there's something unfinished by someone. And so as we unpack this, there's actually a number of different translations that we could get from this Hebrew. It could be I am who I am. It could be I will be who I will be. I will cause to be what I will cause to be, or I am who I will be. Did you get all that? There's a test later, so. Even if you didn't get all that, what it it gets to is something I think very profound and important that we remember about this God that we are approaching and that we seek to know, is that God cannot be pinned down entirely. He cannot be pinned down the way we want to. There's something unfinished in the present and the future that God is still going to show us about who He is. His revelation of who He is is still not done yet. And so, as we start to dig further, you may be wondering, okay, so if I am who I am, if this is the name of God, why do I not see it in my Bible when I read it other than in this spot? And the answer to that is it's there, it's just hard to find, especially in English. 
Have you ever noticed, especially when you're reading through the Old Testament, that there's the word Lord? And if you haven't noticed, that's fine. Go pick up a Bible and read. You'll notice, you'll notice this after we share it. The word Lord is actually used in three different ways. One is just all lowercase and referring to people in positions of authority. The other two are referring to God, where one is the capital L, lowercase r-o-r-d. The other is all capitals L-O-R-D. If you have never seen it before, now you're never going to be able to unsee it because it's everywhere. And what you have here is the capital L-O-R-D, all caps, is actually this personal name of God, Y-H-W-H. And so you may be going, well, so why don't they just give us the Y-H-W-H? And it actually goes back to the tradition of Judaism that did not pronounce the personal name of God. They were afraid that they were going to misuse it. And so out of reverence for God and for his name, they just stopped speaking it all together. And instead, they would say, Lord, even when the text read Y-H-W-H. Additionally, when the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scripture, was translated into Greek, The Greek translators did not carry over the YHWH. They just wrote Lord in Greek instead. And so time goes on. The Greek tradition doesn't even have YHWH. The Hebrew text is still being preserved. But since they stopped speaking the name I am, the pronunciation was lost. Because the only way pronunciation of the biblical Hebrew was maintained was through speaking. Because there weren't actually vowels in the original Hebrew text. Well, so some guys named the Masoretes came along in the 6th century, or the 600 AD or so, and they said, we want to preserve the pronunciation of the Hebrew text. And so they went through and they created a whole system of vowels using dots and points and things that when you look at the scripture now, you'll see their hand all over it because they were trying to preserve the pronunciation of the way it had been. Well, when it came to God's personal name, that pronunciation had been lost, And they were afraid of mispronouncing, misusing the name of God. And so instead of trying to guess at it, they intentionally took the vowels that they had assigned to the name Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. They used those vowels and put them on the Y-H-W-H, and so it created the word Yahweh, which may be a word that you've heard before. And so this is Yahweh becomes the personal name of God. And then, I'm going to take it another step further. When that was translated into Latin, they took Yahweh, and then they transliterated that into Latin, and it became Jehovah. That may be a name for God that you have heard before. So you have Yahweh and Jehovah. This is the personal name of God, but you also have the Greek tradition saying Lord. And so when these were all trying to be reconciled in the English translations, they decided, man, How do we keep the distinction between Lord and Yahweh, upholding the traditions? So they came up with this system where they used all caps, L-O-R-D. That was a lot more history than you probably really wanted. I recognize that. It's more than we usually try to give. But it's really important when we're trying to know, when you're reading the Scripture, to know God more fully what you're seeing. L-O-R-D, all caps, is the personal name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah, as revealed to Moses on this mountain through this encounter. So what is this story? What is this name? What does all this technical grammar and history actually tell us that matters in our life? Good question. I'm glad you asked. 
I think it tells us at least four things. It tells us that God is independent, personal, present, and self-revealing. I am who I am. That tells us that God is completely independent. I am, I am, I'm self-existent. I do not need anyone else. There is no other cause before me or beside me. Existence itself is all contained within me. You know, some people really struggle with a relationship with God because they feel like what they see in science doesn't line up with what they find in the Scripture. And they struggle when they try, they try to wrap their head around what science really has, some wonderful ideas, some very clear evidence, but also has some theories, and they're trying to reconcile these things and don't feel like the God of the Bible is reconcilable. But when we get to questions of the origins of life, and I, before I even say that, if that's you, I'd love to talk with you because those are real and appropriate and hard questions, and I'd love to have some more conversation. But one reality, when we start getting to the origins of life, science has this incredible idea of the Big Bang. Well, that explains wonderfully, potentially, how all things that we experience came into being. But there's a pretty fundamental question that cannot be answered by the theory, and that's what happened right before the Big Bang. And God is answering that question it wasn't a question on their minds, but th this text answers that question. God is saying, I am. Right before the Big Bang, I am. I am the pre-existent. I am the self-existent. The one in whom everything that has come into being, through whom it has come into being. I am. And see, here's the thing. If God is that independent, then there's incredible hope because means God cannot be moved by any other force, any other circumstance, any other situation, any destruction, devastation, or chaos. There is nothing that can move him off of who he is. Nothing can diminish him or reduce him. He is independent of all influences. And so if we find ourselves in a situation where we are struggling, perhaps where we are oppressed like the people of God in slavery in Egypt or in sorrow or despair, Know that you may be moved, but God isn't. He's not swayed by the circumstances. I mean, if you think about this, if you're swimming in the ocean, and you're, you're swimming along, and suddenly it feels like th this, the waves have gotten bigger, and they're starting to get bigger and bigger, and maybe you're a little ways out, and the waves start coming over your head, and you're, you're struggling to keep your head above water, is it helpful to grab onto somebody else who's next to you who is also struggling to keep their head above water? No, you're both going under. See, but those are two people that are moved by the circumstance and the chaos, and God is saying, no, 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 I'm not moved by those waves. I'm not in the surf with you. I'm standing on the shore. If you want a lifeline, I can throw it to you. As an independent person, God is able to offer us help in the midst of chaos and struggle in a way that nothing else, no one else ever can, because there is no force or influence that can act upon him. But he is also a person. He is personal. I am. I is a, it's a personal reference. See, somebody in our staff meeting this week pointed out that the gods that are referred to often throughout the Bible, the God of the peoples that would live in the promised land that they're going to, the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Huzawites and the otherites and all of those people, 
See, they had gods that were associated with their religion, but their gods were tied to the physical place, the physical location. Their gods seem to have authority over that area, and God is in this saying, I am. He's saying, I am a personal God. I'm not tied to places. I don't have limited authority over an area. I'm tied to people. I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am the one who has authority not just over place, but over all people, over all humanity. I'm the God of people, and I care deeply about people. And even the actions that we see God taking, if you look at the verbs throughout this passage, are very personal actions. He sees the oppression of his people in Egypt. He sees their struggle. He hears as they cry out to him, pleading for mercy and justice. And he is moved, he cares, he is concerned. It's what's caused him to even come down to rescue them in the first place. I'm concerned for their well-being. See, and it's interesting, it's not enough, these are very personal things, but it's not enough just to be personal, that he saw, that he heard, that he was concerned. There was more, he moved towards it. Because if you think about our lives, I don't know about you, maybe this is just me, but there's been lots of things in my life that I've seen, that I've heard the truth of, that I've even felt concern about, but I didn't really do anything about it. You know, you think about when my parents tried to motivate me to finish my dinner because there were all the starving children in Africa, right? It's true. I heard all about it. I'd seen their pictures on television. When you see it, your heart can't help but to ache at least a little bit and have some concern for them, but it caused me to do a whole lot different No, I did not finish my vegetables because I was caring about the children in Africa. It's because I had other things I wanted to go do and my parents weren't letting me get out from the table. Right? And, And we can think about a whole, unfortunately, a whole list of other things that when we're shown, when we see, when we hear, we're not actually moved to get involved and do anything about it. We don't go towards it. But God is saying, I see, I hear, and I have this deep concern, and I am getting involved. I am present to them. I have come down to rescue my people, to deliver them. I am who I am. I am present. And he says even to Moses, I will go with you. I will be present with you. See, there's nowhere we can go. There's nowhere you can be forced to go. No situation you can be forced into that God is not seeing you and present with you in it. The God who is independent, who is not moved by the storm you may find yourself overwhelmed by, sees you, hears you, and is present with you in the middle of it. But there's one other thing, at least one other thing that this name reveals. And that it's God is self-revealing. Because when we actually think about, get back to the, the language, the grammar, remember the construction of this name could be I will be who I will be, or I am who I will be. In other words, it's that unfinished nature. It's that unfinished portion of his identity. And what's unfinished is what he will make known to us. In other words, you don't You're made to know him, and I'm made to know him, but we don't know him fully yet, right? We can't say that we fully understand him, and yet right here in his personal name is revealed to us the reality that he wants to be made, wants to be known, and he wants you to know him more fully, and he promises that he will be 
more fully known by you. And so he's saying to them, he's saying to us, yeah, you'll know me more fully when you see me at work. When you see me rescue you from Egypt and bring you out of the bondage of slavery, yeah, you'll see me, you'll know me, you'll see me throughout history. When I bring you into that promised land flowing with milk and honey, you'll know me. You'll know my heart that longs to give you an abundance of blessing. When you live lives of unfaithfulness throughout history, you'll know me because you'll know I will be merciful. I will show discipline. I will bring justice. You will know my wrath. You will also know my grace and my unfailing love for you. You will know I am who I will be. And you will know me more fully, more deeply as your lives play out and as history rolls on. But it's also I will be who I will be. It's not I will be who you want me to be. It's not how we determine in our own ideas, our own preferences, our own understanding of how the world works or we think it should work. It's not how we think God should act on our behalf or on others. It's how God shows himself to act. It means I am who I am, but it also means he's not limited by our narrow view of him. He's not limited by our constraints of imagination and possibility. He's not limited by the little box that we like to stuff him in and carry him around with us. He's not limited by your doubts, by your questions, by your fears. I will be who I will be on my terms, not yours. And this is ultimately most clearly seen for us in Jesus Christ. See, this whole passage and the story of Exodus is one great paradigm foreshadowing what God is going to do in the history of all humanity. He comes down to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt just as he is saying, I'm coming down to rescue all of humanity from your slavery to sin, your slavery to self-centeredness, your slavery to rebellion against me and the plans and purposes I have for your life. I am coming down to rescue you. See, and and this is really the incredible surprising. This is part of God's ongoing self-revelation because does that even make sense? if we really think about it. If we've been living our lives in such a way that we're basically saying, you know what, God, I got it. Does it even make sense that God would come down? Doesn't it make more sense that he would justly squish me? It does. Justice makes sense. Grace is a part of that amazing self-revelation of God that does not fit into the box that we would confine it to. And yet in His grace, the very Son of God came down to live, to die, to rise, to save us and rescue us from our slavery. This is the one that Paul was writing about in that first Colossians passage earlier. Right? The Son, who's the image of the invisible God, the fullness of the deity dwells in Him. Man, when we look at Jesus, we get the clearest picture in all of history of who God is. He's the visible image of the invisible God. He's God with flesh on. And what we see is he is, in fact, the independent and self-existent one. All things, Paul told us, were created in him and through him and for him, and he holds all things together. He's the personal one that came down and lived among us, put the flesh on, 
present to us as Emmanuel, God with us. And as he left, leaving his disciples, giving them that commission at the very end of Matthew, he says, and here's my promise to you, I will be with you always to the very end of the age, no matter what's going on. And so when you look at Jesus, you see the I am. You see God most clearly. And this all happened for Moses in this very ordinary place on a mountain with a bush. But man, did you notice that it was holy ground? Was there something unique about that bush that made it holy? I think it was the very presence of Yahweh that made that place holy. Take off your sandals. But it was also that place, that ordinary place, became the place where God revealed his name to Moses and began the personal relationship that allowed him to know him more deeply. And I wonder for us, for you and for me, if we are missing out on the ordinary places in our day-to-day life where God wants to let you know, I am. And if we're just so focused on shuffling with our feet to the ground, getting from one thing to the next, that we're missing the possibility that the independent and self-existent one sees you personally, knows what you're walking through, is present right there with you, and we're missing it because we're not lifting our eyes up to see what he may reveal to us in the very face of Jesus Christ. Whatever you're walking through, know that God is I am. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your amazing self-revelation. We don't deserve it, and yet you choose to to show us who you are, teach us, and, and tell us. May you continue to open our eyes, lift them to you. May we come to know you more deeply and cling to you in and through all things. God, we praise you as the one who is independent. We thank you that you are also the God who's not just over and above all things, but is personal to us, present to us, and lets us know you. God, that's the longing of our heart, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.